You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome back to the continuation of the Corbett Report podcast. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the radioactive climes of Western Japan on this 27th day of March, 2011. And I'd like to, of course, encourage listeners to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, to find previous articles, interviews, videos, and podcast episodes that have been uploaded to that site over the past four years, and also to find links to other websites which I find to be valuable sources of information and that help to broadcast the Corbett Report and its work. And to those who have been expecting a word from me during the recent incredible calamities happening in Japan, I would like to once again reiterate that, of course, I was on hiatus, a planned hiatus during this time as I was in Canada attending my mother's funeral. So I was completely out of the news loop for a week or two there and am just back last week uh, to Japan and I'm now back reporting on the crisis and back earlier from the hiatus than planned. For anyone who hasn't been checking into CorbettReport.com over the last several days, you'll notice there are now interviews and videos and articles rolling out on CorbettReport.com, and there will, of course, continue to be so in what I hope will be the regular video and article and podcast episode schedule from now on. So once again, I'm back from hiatus, and I strongly suggest people check into CorbettReport.com for the latest on what's unfolding here in Japan. And there is absolutely no doubt that given the scale, scope, and size of the calamity that Japan is facing right now, and given the fact that I am, of course, based in Japan, I am going to be here doing my best to try to report on the information coming out of both the Fukushima nuclear crisis and, of course, the tsunami and uh, its effects as well. So that will be the main focus of the website for the next few weeks at any rate, and uh, I certainly hope that it will be a valuable resource of information for people. And on that note, I would like to direct people to an article that I put up earlier this week about resources related to Fukushima nuclear crisis, which I have been updating as different information has come in from various uh, people who have been kind enough to email their ideas. I'm trying to keep this article to a manageable length because I think too much information might actually be detrimental at this point. I'd like to just try to include really key sources of information. So I have news and information, information from the Japanese government in English and radioactivity level readings from various agencies slash independent sources, because of course, as my listeners will well understand, we cannot rely on just official government sources for information in times like these, especially given the track record of various governments around the world covering up the true extent of nuclear crises. But again, uh, that is a resource that uh, that is hopefully still in in flux, and I'm still open to suggestions as people um, have have them. And so, please take a look at that resource. Take a look at the the things that are there. And if you have other ideas for things that should be included there, please let me know. Um, I'm trying to focus mostly on information about Japan and the Japanese area itself, but there's still some information about radioactivity level readings in North America, etc., which I hope will be valuable to people in North America. And on another note, uh, I, I think obviously the Fukushima nuclear crisis is the main thing which I'm going to be concerned with in the coming week or two. 
and I plan on releasing a podcast episode, perhaps even a two-hour episode or a, a longer edition next week specifically on that topic but because it is such a huge topic and one of such critical importance I really do want to do my homework and try to get as much valuable information as I can before tackling that issue so although my Sunday update and New World next week this week were both about the the Fukushima nuclear crisis primarily uh, I will be continuing to do interviews uh, over the coming week on this crisis and trying to get more solid information about what's happening and what we might be able to expect in order to really provide you with a valuable podcast episode on that subject. So that will be next week's episode. And for those of you who have seen the title of today's episode on your iTunes or on CorporateReport.com or what have you, you'll know that this episode is devoted specifically to the issue of the 311 earthquake, the Tohoku Pacific Ocean earthquake, as it's known. And that is the topic of today. But obviously, Obviously, the most important thing right now is trying to get aid and and support to the people in the afflicted areas in northeastern Japan, and that's increasingly difficult, and obviously the nuclear crisis is making it even more difficult to ensure that uh, donations and aid are going to where they're needed. So one of the things that I'm preoccupied with at the moment is the question of where people can send donations and aid that will not be diverted or used in other ways or used for political purposes or skimmed off the top, etc. Because, of course, the uh, the obvious thing that happens in crises like this is that people are donate, uh, motivated to donate millions upon millions of dollars and, and do- donate all sorts of resources. And a lot of that oft- often gets skimmed off the top or diverted to other things. So I don't want to just recommend the Red Cross or the United Way and anyways, people know how to donate to those types of organizations if they want want to, I would like to try to compile a list of organizations that hopefully operate on the local level there in northeastern Japan that will ensure that all of the donations will reach the people who are affected. And at this point, I haven't done uh, much vetting whatsoever of the organizations there, but I have received some ideas from listeners in in uh, in Japan and in other areas of possible places to go for people to get more information on making donations to the area. And I'll just relate those uh, those suggestions. Uh, again, this is not an in any way a recommendation by me for these uh, particular organizations. I I am just relating the information that's been relayed to me, and I'll let people do their own vetting at this point, and I'll try to have uh, interviews or or some sort of vetting of my own to try to see if I can recommend an organization that's delivering aid. But uh, one thing that has been uh, put forward to me as a possible agency for making donations to is the Japan International Volunteer Center, and I'll have a link to their website on CorbettReport.com in the documentation section for today's episode so that you can go and check that out. Uh, One listener has written in to suggest the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. Obviously, that's not a religious uh, uh, recommendation, but simply because that organization is known, or at least this, uh, this correspondent claims, is known for getting aid to where it's needed without taking anything off the top. So that's another organization people could be looking into. I've also uh, had a recommendation for Tokyo Hackerspace, which this correspondent says is well known for... Uh, in the hacker community and is apparently trying to provide support uh, for uh, the various uh, technical and technological functions that are still needed in that area where obviously electric power has been so severely disrupted. So uh, people, I'll put a link in so people can take a look into that. Again, I'm not recommending anything at this point. I'm just putting out 
possible sources where people can go to help donate to where it is needed because obviously the scale and scope of what's unfolded in northeastern Japan right now is almost unthinkable with over 27,000 people now listed as missing or dead. And that's where our focus and our, our real thoughts and prayers need to be at this time, this extremely trying time for the people of Japan. So without further ado, let's get into the main topic of today's episode. Welcome, my friends, to episode 179 of the Corbett Report podcast, What Caused the 311 Earthquake? By now, I'm sure my listeners need no introduction to the Tohoku Pacific Ocean earthquake that occurred on March 11, 2011 in Japan. But for those who need reminding at this stage, after we've seen so much information and news coming out after the fact, exactly how big and how incredible that seismic activity really was, let's turn to the Los Angeles Times from the 13th of March 2011 for a story headlined, 9.0 Japan Earthquake Shifted Earth on Its Axis. Quote, Friday's earthquake off the eastern coast of Japan was upgraded to a magnitude 9.0 by the Japan Meteorological Agency, the Kyoto News Agency reported Sunday. Other details are emerging. The quake probably shifted the position of Earth's axis about 6.5 inches, said Richard Gross, a geophysicist at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in La Canada Flint Ridge, in an email. The trembler also should have caused Earth to rotate somewhat faster, shortening the length of the day by about 1.8 microseconds, he said. End quote. Now, of course, it is hard to wrap your mind around something of that magnitude, but one perhaps image that might actually help people to really understand the incredible seismic activity that's been going on in the region just off the coast of Japan ever since that 9.0 trembler on the 11th of March is available at japanquakemap.com, which shows the uh, actual location, depth, and uh, magnitude of all of the several hundred earthquakes that have taken place in the past two weeks, all in that same area all along that incredibly seismically active place where three tectonic plates meet, the Filipino plate, the Pacific plate, and the North American plate. And, of course, this is a seismically active region, and it is absolutely not unusual to see large earthquakes in this area, but still a 9.0 magnitude earthquake is almost unthinkable in the scale and magnitude of the force that it unleashes, and, of course, we saw what that caused with the tsunami that devastated so much of northeastern Japan. Perhaps to some extent, to certain listeners out there, it will seem somewhat of a strange question to even ask what caused the 311 earthquake, because of course this is an earthquake and plate tectonics are fairly well understood, and the incredible forces that of plates rubbing against each other that causes earthquakes is by now pretty well understood, so it should not be much of an issue at all to answer this question, should it? So first, let's separate out the question what caused the earthquake into two separate questions. The first being, how did the earthquake actually occur? And we have an answer on that from NHK, the Japanese national broadcaster. Japan's meteorological agency says the powerful earthquake on March 11th occurred due to a fault line shift of up to 30 meters. 
The agency said on Friday that it discovered this while analyzing how the quake occurred based on seismometer data it obtained in Japan and abroad. The findings show the breakdown of the fault started in waters off Miyagi Prefecture. The northern portion of the fault line stretching 200 kilometers off Iwate Prefecture and the southern part stretching 150 kilometers moved. Immediately afterward, about 100 kilometers of the southern part of the fault line moved toward waters off Ibaraki Prefecture. All this shows that the 450-kilometer fault line shifted a distance of up to 30 meters in just three minutes. So far, so straightforward. A fault line shift of 30 meters in three minutes created an incredible seismic activity on March 11th, which of course led to the tsunami that we all saw in horror unfolding on our TV screens. Myself included, as I was hundreds of miles away from the epicenter of that quake and on the other side of the uh, country entirely, so I, of course, was not directly affected by that earthquake or the tsunami. But for more particular information on exactly what happened in this massive, unthinkable earthquake, we can turn to EarthquakeReport.com, which on March 18th, 2011, put up a report entitled Understanding the Magnitude 9.0 Massive Tohoku Sendai Japan Earthquake and Tsunami. Quote, the magnitude 9.0 Tohoku earthquake on March 11, 2011, which occurred near the northeast coast of Honshu, Japan, resulted from thrust faulting on or near the subduction zone plate boundary between the Pacific and North America plates. At the latitude of this earthquake, the Pacific plate moves approximately westwards with respect to the North America plate at a rate of 83 millimeters per year and begins its westward descent beneath Japan at the Japan Trench. Note that some authors divide this region into several microplates that together define the relative motions between the larger Pacific, North American, and Eurasia plates. These include the Ohotsk and Amur microplates that are respectively part of North America and Eurasia. The location, depth, and focal mechanism of the March 11th earthquake are consistent with the event having occurred on the subduction zone plate boundary. Modeling of the rupture of this earthquake indicate that the fault moved upwards of 30 to 40 meters and slipped over an area approximately 300 kilometers along by 150 kilometers wide. The rupture zone is roughly centered on the earthquake epicenter along strike, while peak slips were updip of the hypocenter towards the Japan Trench axis. The March 11th earthquake was preceded by a series of large foreshocks over the previous two days, beginning on March 9th with a magnitude 7.2 event approximately 40 kilometers from the epicenter of the March 11th earthquake, and continuing with another three earthquakes greater than magnitude 6 on the same day. The Japan Trench subduction zone has hosted nine events of magnitude 7 or greater since 1973. The largest of these, a magnitude 7.8 earthquake approximately 260 kilometers north of the March 11th epicenter, caused three fatalities and almost 700 injuries in December 1994. In June of 1978, a magnitude 7.7 earthquake 35 kilometers to the southwest of the March 11th epicenter caused 22 fatalities and over 400 inj injuries. Large offshore earthquakes have occurred in the same subduction zone in 1611, 1896, and 1933 that each produced devastating tsunami waves on the Sanriku coast of Pacific Northeast Japan. That coastline is particularly vulnerable to tsunami waves because it has many deep coastal embayments that amplify tsunami waves and cause great wave inundations. The magnitude 7.6 subduction earthquake of 1896 created tsunami waves as high as 
38 meters and a reported death toll of 27,000. The magnitude 8.6 earthquake of March 2nd, 1933 produced tsunami waves as high as 29 meters on the Sanriku coast and caused more than 3,000 fatalities. Continuing readjustments of stress and associated aftershocks are expected in the region of this earthquake. The exact location and timing of future aftershocks cannot be specified. Numbers of aftershocks will continue to be highest on and near to fault segments on which rupture occurred at the time of the main shock. The frequency of aftershocks will tend to de decrease with elapsed time from the time of the main shock, but the general de decrease of activity may be punctuated by episodes of higher aftershock activity. Beyond the ongoing aftershock sequence, the USGS does not believe that the earthquakes in Japan have significantly raised the probability of future major earthquakes. While the possibility of future large earthquakes far from northern Honshu has not increased, neither has it decreased, and large earthquakes will continue to occur, just as we have observed in the past. End quote. And that text was courtesy of the United States Geological Survey, USGS, so it does represent the main line of scientific opinion on this subject. But as longtime listeners to the Corporate Report will know, this program has never shied away from questioning the mainline scientific opinion on any given subject, so I am not opposed to the idea of thinking that there might be other possible explanations for the earthquake that happened or for the cause of the earthquake itself. And to begin broaching the subject of what crazy, weird conspiracy theorists might believe that there is some other cause to these earthquakes than the regular plate tectonics that we all know and understand to some extent or other, let's turn to Danny Glover in the wake of the Haiti earthquake. This is a great moment for another type of internationalism. You know, yes. and, and, I, and I hope we seize this particular moment, mm. because the threat of what happened to Haiti is a threat that can happen anywhere in the Caribbean to these island nations, mm. you know. They're all that in peril true. because of global warming, they're all in peril because of climate change and all this, and we need to find this. this when we will leave back, when we did what we did at the climate summit in Copenhagen, this is the response, this is what happened, you know what I'm saying? But we have to act now. Yes, it should come as no surprise by now that the proponents of man-made climate change will jump on any natural disaster and human calamity to further the promotion of their now discredited scientific theory that carbon dioxide is driving our clam climate and that human influence is utterly destroying the planet for all eternity. But unfortunately, that's exactly what happens. And of course, in the wake of any such tragedy, we can expect such talk as Danny Glover gave in the wake of the Haiti uh, earthquake tragedy last year. And yes, predictably enough, it was on the very day of the earthquake on March 11th that grist.org ran a story that was originally headlined, Today's Tsunami, This is What Climate Change Looks Like. But interestingly enough, the author of that article, Christopher Mims, was compelled to change the title of that story to Does Climate Change Mean More Tsunamis? Because as he explains in his update, the intent of this piece isn't to attribute today's tragedy to climate change. Apologies to those whom I misled with the headline. It was meant literally, as in, tsunamis are inundations of shorelines and therefore have impacts that resemble storm surges, which are one of the most immediate threats of a warmer planet. 
In addition, climate change may cause tsunamis directly, so it's possible we'll someday see more images like this as a result. Well, make of that what you will, but I will make of it that it is absolutely wonderfully hardening to think that the pimps of the climate change fallacy are unable to get away with their usual scaremongering headlines and to profit off of these terrible calamities for their own purposes of basically demonizing all human activity on the planet. And uh, not only was the headline changed on that article, but parts of the text have now been stricken out. So I will include a link so you can go and take a look at that article and see how he has stricken out at attributions of climate change to the 2004 tsunami, etc. Because people are not standing for that anymore, and there is no scientific basis to say that climate change was somehow an, uh, the cause of this earthquake or tsunami. And uh, thankfully, people are not standing for that. So that is somewhat of a good sign, and we can safely cross off the list the idea that man-made climate change was somehow responsible for this earthquake. Well then, what are some of the other theories that have been suggested? Well, it was in the wake of this earthquake that I started to get a flood of emails about HARP. As I would assume the majority of my listeners are no doubt already to some extent aware, HARP is the High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program and reading from the program purpose on the HARP homepage at harp.alaska.edu. HARP is a scientific endeavor aimed at studying the properties and behavior of the ionosphere, with particular emphasis on being able to understand and use it to enhance communications and surveillance systems for both civilian and defense purposes. The HARP program is committed to developing a world-class ionospheric research facility consisting of the Ionospheric Research Instrument, a high-power transmitter facility operating in the high-frequency range. The IRI, the IRI will be used to temporarily excite a limited area of the ionosphere for scientific study. A sophisticated suite of scientific or diagnostic instruments that will be used to observe the physical processes that occur in the excited region. Observation of the processes resulting from the use of the IRI in a controlled manner will allow scientists to better understand processes that occur continuously under the natural stimulation of the sun. Scientific instruments installed at the HARP Observatory will be use useful for a variety of continuing research efforts which do not involve the use of the IRI but are strictly passive. Among these studies include ionospheric characterization using satellite beacons, telescopic observation of the fine structure in the aurora, and documentation of long-term variations in the ozone layer. End quote. Well, that, of course, is a lot of scientific obfuscation and gobbledygook, but at any rate, that's the official program purpose of the HARP program. But as my listeners, I am sure, are no doubt aware there are perhaps alternative theories of what HARP is about and what it is really being used for of floating around on the web. And that is why, no doubt, I had a flood of emails in the wake of this earthquake insisting that this was HARP, and it must be HARP. Well, very interesting. Well, let's start taking a look at some of the information and some of the people who are promoting the idea that this was a HARP influenced and induced earthquake, which was, in fact, a version of tectonic warfare, tectonic weaponry, then this earthquake was, in fact, a planned, controlled, manipulated disaster. And the first source we will turn to in this endeavor is an interview that Alfred Weber recently conducted with Lorraine Murray about HARP and the 311 earthquake. 
there there are a number of possibilities there. One, one is that the earthquake, the 9.0 or 9.1 earthquake, itself was one of the recurring earthquakes, not 8.5, but was a mega event, but in that in that recurring zone. The other possibility was what uh, you and I have been exploring, uh, and that is a series of, in fact, tectonic attacks, earthquake attacks, uh, using the the, uh, the the force of earthquakes as a military type attack. Uh, uh, and we've looked at a number of earthquakes, China in 2008, Haiti in 2010, Chile in 2010, perhaps others. That possibility is that the uh, Japan earthquake of March 2011 was in fact a a, uh, a military strike, a, a tectonic uh, uh, attack uh, using harp or some other mechanism uh, to trigger that earthquake. Which do you think it was? Well, the evidence that I've gathered up to this time indicates it was not a natural earthquake. It was a modified natural earthquake. In other words, um, it was uh, initiated by external energy uh, that was not inherent to the, the fault zone. And this is known as tectonic warfare. And it's part of the HARP uh, air-based, air space-based, land-based, sea-based weapon system that was secretly developed during the Cold War by the Soviet Union and the United States together. The um, money uh, for the development of the secret pro program, which was a huge, vast amount of money, um, was done, uh, it was carried out under the cover of Star Wars and missile defense and in fact, they were secretly developing this vast system to weaponize the energy that is inherent in natural processes. Now, this is the point at which I would play that part of the interview in which Lorraine Murray and Alfred Weber go on to describe in detail the mechanism by which HARP works how it can theoretically be used to create earthquakes, how we can detect harp influence in the causation of earthquakes, and how we know in this specific case of the 311 earthquake why harp was why she believes harp was used as a tectonic warfare weapon. But there is absolutely none of that in that interview. And trust me, I did listen to the entire interview in rapt attention, waiting for such an explanation, but it did not come which was particularly disappointing because the only reason I am now playing that clip from that interview is because it was emailed to me by so many different people who all insisted that this was a must-listen-to interview with very important information. But as I just said, there is 
truly no explanation whatsoever of how Harp can be used as a tectonic warfare weapon or why she believes it was used in this case. So it is absolutely useless for the determination of whether Harp was actually used as an earthquake weapon in this case. So we'll have to turn to a completely different source to find any idea of how such a mechanism could possibly work. And in this case, we're going to turn to an old, a rather old documentary at this point, several years old, but one that still has some degree of usefulness in highlighting such issues, and it's called Holes in Heaven. And let's take a listen to a small clip describing what HARP is, how it works, and how it can be used to generate earthquakes. What does HARP do? HARP is, is a large antenna where we beam radio frequency energy up into the upper atmosphere and we create on a small scale what the sun normally does. And the reason we're trying to do this is because when, when you have disturbances in the ionosphere we can't communicate with our satellites. HARP began with a congressional insertion uh, in the appropriations bill of, of fiscal year 1990. In essence, Congress directed the Defense Department to explore the potential for using um, the auroral regions um, for uh, improving communications and navigation and um, surveillance. Um, from there, uh, the assignment came that the Navy and the Air Force were to manage the program. It is uh, people from those two organizations that have worked together for the past seven years. Applications uh, discussed in the patents included destroying missiles. Communications control and disruption were included. There were some other ideas both to possibly modify weather and finally uh, to lift a portion of the upper atmosphere further out into space where hopefully it would be able to deflect missile trajectories. What we do by, by beaming up radio frequency up into the ionosphere, um, that radio frequency, when it hits molecules of atmosphere, it tends to make the subatomic particles inside move faster, and that increases their temperature. So you can bring their temperature up to uh, 1,600 degrees or so, which is normally what the sun does to those particles at that atmosphere. The ionosphere of the Earth has got enormous amount of energy. There are 8,000 thunderstorms going on all over the Earth at any given moment. There are millions of amperes of electricity uh, pouring to the Earth from uh, lightning strikes. And HARP could create a trigger effect. In 1983, I did radio tomography with 30 watts looking for oil in the ground. I found 26 oil wells over a nine-state area and 100% of the time was accurate with just 30 watts of power beaming straight into solid rock. HARP uses a billion watts beam straight into the ionosphere for experiments. Picture these strings on the piano as layers of the earth. Each one has its own frequency. What we used to do is beam radio waves into the ground and it would vibrate any strings that were present in the ground. We might get a sound back like and we'd say that's natural gas. We might get a sound back like and we'd say that's crude oil. We were able to identify each frequency 
we accomplish this with just 30 watts of radio power. If you do this with a billion watts, the vibrations are so violent that the entire piano would shake. In fact, the whole house would shake. In fact, the vibrations could be so severe underground that could even cause an earthquake. Well, there we have something more approaching an explanation of exactly how harp functions and how it can function as a tectonic weapon, but still it leaves a little bit for me to be desired in terms of actual technical detail. The analogy of the piano strings is an interesting one and it does bring out the point, but I would prefer to see something a little bit more technically detailed because uh, I have no doubt that there are all sorts of things that are going on and that harp and other types of systems can be used for that we do not know about and are not privy to, but it would help to have a little bit more technical detail. And of course, there are a lot of other documentaries and things out there about harp. And in fact, coincidentally enough, it was just a few weeks before this earthquake happened that I was actually screening Holes in Heaven and other documentaries, trying to look for a a decent documentary to put uh, as part of the Documentaries That Matter series of this podcast, so that uh, I could introduce these concepts to the listeners. But I have yet to really find one that I think is really hard-hitting and really comes down with just the facts. Even that Holes in Heaven documentary, if you go and screen the rest, and by all means, please do if you feel like it, but I found there were other parts of it that were quite flaky and completely devoid of any anything approaching science. They're just a vague nebulous gobbledygook about energy and things that are spoken by people who clearly have no background in science. And um, for my mind, that's just not what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for nebulous gobbledygook. So although I have no doubt that harp can be used for all sorts of things, and I am certainly open to the possibility that harp can be used for tectonic warfare, and that it even has been used for tectonic warfare, but I am still far from convinced that it was used in this case, and I need to see something a lot more concrete than that before I go about making my decisions on this. I'm not telling you how to think or what to think, but I am saying that this is my own considered opinion on this matter. And I will, of course, throw in more links, because there is more to, obviously, a lot more to be said about harp and its possible use in these types of situations. One thing that I will throw in is a link to a transcript from defense.gov of an April 28, 1997 Department of Defense news briefing by Secretary of Defense William Cohen. It's oft cited for his offhand casual remark that some people are developing technologies which can, quote, alter the climate, set off earthquakes, volcanoes remotely through the use of electromagnetic waves, end quote. And that is the the Secretary of Defense. So again, this is not exactly the realm of crazy, kooky conspiracy theory. And I will also throw in a link that one listener sent to earthpulse.com and a page called Background of the Harp Project, which goes into some of the technical detail and some of the plans for previous implementations of electromagnetic weapons or systems of various sorts from Project Argus to the Solar Power uh, Satellite Project to SPS military implications, etc. And I'll let you read through that. And I will also throw in a link that uh, our good friend Morgan Lesko of wikiworldorder.com gave to uh, an article that he has, Tragic 311.11 Earthquake in Japan, Harp Data Screenshots, which shows some screenshots from the Harp um, website itself. And you can go directly to Harp to get this, or you can see it on the Wiki World Order page. 
but basically these are shots of the harp induction magnetometer and the harp fluxgate magnetometer which are measuring various things to do with ULF ultra low frequency readings in the magnetic spectrum I'm not really uh, technically trained in this area so I don't know exactly what I'm looking at but it certainly does show increased activity of some sort around the th from the 9th of March to the 11th of March and it is noticeable and you do not have to be a trained expert to notice it but as this article points out there are other things that are that were going on at that time which might explain disruptions in the magnetic spectrum so again, I think it's far from conclusive from what I've seen that HARP was somehow directly related to this earthquake. I am open to the possibility, but I am still looking for more information on that matter. And to that end, I do plan on interviewing people like Nick Begich, who have been, of course, key sources of information on HARP in the past. And I want to get more technical detail and more into the heart of exactly how this functions and how we can determine whether or not this particular earthquake was caused by HARP. And I think it's useful here to insert an idea that would also be useful for the believers in man-made climate change and how it affects things like earthquakes to simply pose this question. If there was a large-scale earthquake that was not caused by insert your pet theory here, whether it be HARP or man-made global warming or what have you, the question is how would you know it was not caused by that? What would you have to see that would convince you it was nothing to do with HARP? Because it seems to me that HARP is now becoming one of these catch-all terms that people have no clue what it is or how it functions or any of the technical details, but they invoke it almost like they would invoke the name of a, a god of yore in you know, order to explain what's happening in the world. And to my mind, it's almost exactly identical to simply saying that the devil caused the earthquake because people are simply saying it without having any proof of that and they are asserting it with such vehemence that it really makes me question if people are truly applying their analytical abilities here or if they are simply going off something that they heard someone say once and believe it to be true but at any rate please think about that the next time there is a big earthquake how will you be able to tell whether or not it was caused by harp or will you simply assume it was and what is the bigger scheme here why why would it be set off all sorts of things have to be answered answered and to my mind they have not been answered yet so I will work on trying to set up interviews to get more into this particular uh, topic because I know a lot of listeners out there are interested in it and a lot of you were urging me to cover that and that's exactly why ultimately I've decided to do this podcast but ultimately at this point I cannot say with any degree of certainty that HARP was the cause of this earthquake and I think it's irresponsible to start spreading that idea without having any basis for saying it. So I will again, of course, include all those links that I mentioned and allow you to come to your own decisions, but I'd just like to, you to know what my feeling is at this point. But of course, that raises uh, another possibility that, in fact, the disruptions in the magnetic spectrum that were picked up by the HARP induction magnetometer and the fluxgate magnetometer were not due to HARP activity at all, but to another set of cosmic alignments that were happening at that time. And, well, we'll turn to one example of someone who was looking at the astronomy of 311 before it happened and predicting what would happen as a result. Hey, guys. Um, 
I really want to show you something I think is very important here. This is February 27th, 2010. This is the date that astrophysicist Michio Kaku told us that the Earth's axis shifted, which caused the Chile earthquake. Do me a favor, just put your finger on the spot where Earth is, and I'm going to zoom out and show you where the Earth is relative to Comet Elenin. See that? It's a perfect alignment last year. Now let's see when the alignment is this year. Okay, it looks like it could be March 11th through the 15th, I'm thinking. So I would recommend that if you're living in a fault zone area, take a vacation before March 11th. That's what I'm recommending. That's what I've been recommending for three months. I don't even live in a fault zone area, and I'm going to make sure that I have my emergency gear packed and ready to go before this hits. Something is going to happen, guys. It may not be the grand pole shift, but something's going to happen. Well, make of that what you will, and certainly that is a video that has gone viral predicting a sub three days in advance of that earthquake that there would be some sort of catastrophic seismic activity on March 11th, although the more you really interrogate into that prediction, the less amazing it becomes, not only because it was a vaguely defined March 11th to, what was it, the 14th range, it was also anywhere along a fault line anywhere in the world, so I think that would be the type of uh, prediction where you could hedge your bets, so to speak, and it's pretty safe to say there'd be an earthquake along a fault line somewhere in the world on March 11th, just as there is every single day of some size or other, and uh, apparently this was a prediction that happened to land on a day of a particularly sizable uh, disruption. So it's not in and of itself evidence of anything, and certainly if you go and watch the rest of that video, there's a lot of gobbledygook about, uh, well, things that probably had no relation to it, but at any rate, I'll put it in there. It's the link for you to follow to investigate more for yourself, and by all means, don't listen to me. Please go and investigate it for yourself and come to your own decisions. Uh, there are other examples of predictions of this earthquake, um, one from the David Icke Forum, a user who may or may not have predicted before or perhaps slightly after the earthquake happened. I'm not exactly sure about the, the timing of that one, but um, it, a lot of people are saying that it was a prediction at any rate, so you can go and check that out as well. And also, uh, there's another prediction from someone who my listeners should be familiar with if they listen to episode 177 of this podcast, and that's Piers Corbin of WeatherAction.com, who predicted after the New Zealand earthquake on the 21st of February 2011 that we are entering a period of increased earthquake activity, and over the next two years, we should expect more earthquakes like the one that we saw recently in Christchurch. And he's basing that on his solar cycle slash lunar modulation th uh, thesis of what drives the weather and also what drives tectonic activity as well to, to a certain extent. And although they're not the exact same uh, forcings, they are related at any rate. So taking this from the 21st of February 2011 posting on weatheraction.com, 
quote, prediction of individual earthquakes is very hard, but we are very confident of a continu continuing period of significantly enhanced earthquake and volcanic activity, as well as extreme weather events for the coming one or two years, probably exceeding the levels of the most active extended periods in at least the last 100 years, end quote. And since then, since the earthquake has actually taken place and in Japan, Pierce has gone on in several interviews and in some videos to explain a little bit more about how they arrived at that prediction and what it actually means in terms of not only this earthquake, but future earthquakes as well. Earthquakes and extreme weather events are in the same family. It doesn't mean they all happen together because the, the way the moon and the sun affect the two are different but of course related. And I think the moon's parity in terms of earthquakes is slightly overstated. What we have is solar effects and lunar modulation of those solar effects on the earth which gives you weather and earthquake triggers and then in addition for earthquake triggers we will have lunar tidal effects. And it is true, the lunar perigee will give a bigger uh, crustal distortion which can help trigger earthquakes. But to make them really happen, you also need the solar driver. Now, to get a big solar driver of earthquakes, and indeed of storm events, uh, you need, uh, well it works best, certainly for earthquakes, to have X-level solar flares and associated proton events, which is maybe just a sign of a big solar flare. And you need the rush of particles from the sun, that is the coronal mass ejections, to also hit Earth. And if that happens, especially near actually a lunar nodal crossing, that's when the moon is in the same plane as it's the travel of the Earth around the sun, then you're very likely to get an earthquake. Um, and also, probably even more likely an earthquake a fortnight later when whatever happened on the sun or the other side of the sun comes round again. So, and uh, that has big implications for the, the current uh, situation. There was also a volcano imme erupted immediately after the earthquake. Yes. I mean, the difficulty with all this stuff is there's earthquakes are always happening, lots and lots of little ones. Um, and now... There's a lot of obvious movement going on in, 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 in Earth tectonic plates that a lot's going to carry on happening anyway. So the question is, can we give increased risk of certain things over and above all this kind of increased activity? And I, I think we can. Um, we did warn after the New Zealand earthquake, which was preceded by a big solar flare and the coronal mass ejection hit, we warned there were going to be a lot more extreme earthquakes in the next two years. And, well, this is the first of them, and I do not think it is the last of them. Um, in terms of predicting actual earthquakes, that is a standing difficulty. We, we don't purport to do that. What we are investigating, though, is increased risk of earthquake events. And uh, we can say with... Uh, reasonable clarity that between now and the 19th of March we know there is an 
increased risk of general storm events, and some of those will be associated with, heart, with enhancing earthquake risk. But it might not be a big deal that you can distinguish from the general increase of earthquake noise now happening. However, between the round about the 24th to 27th, we would say there is a very much heightened risk of major earthquake events. Well, certainly the massive coronal mass ejection that occurred on March 9th and the supermoon perigee, which was happening around the 19th and was increasing at the time of the 11th, well, that's all very interesting, and I'm sure it does play into plate tectonics in terms of, uh, at the very least, tidal forces and things like that, but... I once again find the descriptions that come from Pierce Corbin about his method of predicting weather events and now earthquakes and volcanic activity, I find it a little bit lacking in terms of detail, and there are at least three possible explanations for that. One obviously being that he's a charlatan, but uh, to some extent I find that difficult to believe because of his amazing accuracy in predicting climate events. So I think there must be something to his thesis. I suppose a second uh, idea is that he wants to sort of dumb it down for the layman, so to speak, because most people, mo- these technical details would be over most people's head. And I could understand that, but I would still expect there would be some technical detail or some more technical detail on the website. But I think the third and most likely reason that there is a distinct lack of the specific technical detail of how these solar forcings actually work is because it is weather action, of course, is a business of some sort, and he is using uh, his solar lunar modulation thesis to predict weather events and things, obviously, so people will buy his reports. So I'm assuming there is some degree of detail that is being held back because it's something of a trade secret, so to speak. So it is. it leaves a little bit to be desired, but at any rate, it is another thing to ponder. And if people think I'm being particularly harsh in my assessment of these alternative theories for what caused the earthquake, it's only because I truly am looking for the truth, and I don't want to simply go off half-cocked and start muttering on about things that I don't understand or that can't I can't explain. If I can't explain it to you, then I can't explain it to myself, then why on earth would I be propounding it as a theory? So, although I'm certainly open to the idea that HARP or solar lunar modulation, modulations and other things are really the base cause of these earthquakes, I still need further convincing because as we know, earthquakes happen every single day in multiple locations around the world and big earthquakes happen naturally from time to time. And all I want to do is to eliminate the possibility that this was a natural earthquake, which I definitely cannot do at this point. Again, I'm not here to make up your mind for you or tell you how to think. I'm here just laying out the facts as I see them and giving you the sources for my information so you can go back and verify them for yourself and come to your own conclusions. But if there's any word of warning that I would like to give to my listeners, it is simply that we should not propound theories that we don't understand or have no basis for propounding. And, of course, it's incumbent upon myself and upon all of you to go and start doing further research to see if you can come up with something more concrete. And by all means, if you do, please let me know. And I will continue doing my part and lining up interviews. But once again, of course, the most important thing at this point is the relief and donations to people in the afflicted areas in northeastern Japan. So my primary concern right now will be to vet out some organizations through which you can donate either money or resources for those people. 
And let's keep them all in our thoughts and prayers during this horrific time. That's it for this week. I am your host, James Corbett, asking you to join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report.